Empire Lines uncovers the unexpected, often two-way flows of empires through art. Interdisciplinary thinkers use individual artworks as artifacts of imperial exchange, revealing the how and why of the monolith empire. In this episode, contemporary artist Elsa James moves through the Museum of London Docklands London Sugar and Slavery Gallery, and so the missing histories of the 17th and 18th centuries in her 2023 film, Living in the Wake of the Lust for Sugar. So I am Elsa James. I am an Essex-based artist uh, since 1999. I like to say that because I grew up in West London and I still feel as though I have a West London roots. And we're looking at a video projection of your face lit in reds and blacks. This is Living in the Wake of the Lust for Sugar, a seven-minute long film you've created in response to the Museum of London Docklands, London Sugar and Slavery Gallery. As you mentioned, you're London-born, but you're British, African, Caribbean, and I'd love to know, when did you first engage with the collection here? Probably about a couple of years ago, we were planning some work to do in Canary Wharf, actually, as a kind of intervention in the city, as women artists in the public space, and we came into the building, should I say, as a kind of respite, and then we kind of rushed around and said, oh, there is the London Sugar and Slavery Gallery on top floor, and I was just like, oh my God, like, this is up here. It was an accident that I came across the gallery and I kept on thinking I need to go back. But because I started last year to put together a year of research looking at specifically the 17th and 18th century, I included spending time at the London Sugar and Slavery Gallery and some other galleries and museums in the UK and spending time in the Caribbean and West Africa. This film came about with John uh, Francois Manicom as my guidance into the archives and the space. It was a mission of the museum to get me to respond to the London Sugar and Slavery Gallery. It was like, bingo, absolutely. <laughs> That's so fascinating. And the film starts with the removal of the statue of plantation owner Robert Milligan outside the Museum of London Docklands, which followed the toppling of the Colston statue in 2022. But in the film, we really watch you move. You dance and circulate even lie down in the museum space can you talk a little bit about your movements and how you entwine this personal history but also the grand history of the transatlantic slave trade i wanted to move in the space because i'm thinking as an artist how do i change that break that kind of way that an audience would interact with the gallery there was a brief that was very different for me to work with that disrupts traditional curatorial methodologies asked the sound designer to kind of think about the gallery as a metaphor for the slave ship so the sound that feels like a creaking slave ship movement was one of the things that was taken away from enslaved african people moving dancing the sound of the drum to dance in the space just felt like a visceral thing to be part of the emotive 
and the emotions of being enslaved. So I start to begin the film with my name is James because that was another thing. Our names, your language was taken away. So one of the things I learned was that slave traders would, before taking um, enslaved Africans, removing them from Africa, they would make them walk around a tree, like in circles, in a way to erase their memory in that kind of dizzy kind of state. So visually, me walking in the space in that kind of circular movement, which I include in a couple of places, you know, this is something that I learned that's missing. So I had a time frame. I'm not making a feature film. I can't include everything. I was like, right, it's almost like a fast-track course on transatlantic slavery. So in my kind of spending the time in the gallery looking at everything, I was thinking, well, I want to include my voice, but I actually want to include what I think is missing. You know, you walk into the, the space and you see the names on one side of the wall of slave traders and data on the wall. And then you see Africans living in London, and it just jumps to different parts of history. What I think is missing from the gallery is the enslaved African voice. If they could come into this space, how would they look at this? What would they think is happening here? My voice becomes their voice, so therefore I say, I stand here not as I. But also as we. We, the spirits of those who were enslaved. And we the spirits of those who were enslaved who did not survive. The holding, the middle passage, the plantation life, or the plantation torture. And so we have returned to this location. And here, we witness how our brother's and sister's story is recounted and displayed in this setting. For they are living in this wake, in this wake of the lust for sugar. Our hearts are heavy. We ask, who was permitted to tell our story in this setting? Who signed it off? Who controls the narrative? We sense so much is missing. And so much seems to be deflected. So that was important to put into the space. You often use yourself as a subject throughout your work and lust is narrated by the words of Mary Prince, an enslaved woman and a diarist, perhaps even a poet, who eventually escaped to England. Mm. Who was Mary Prince and how did you come to engage with her work? So I came across Mary Prince's work a few years ago. She escaped, she somehow got to England... Um, and this is towards the end, this is towards abolition, people in England realising actually what's going on in the Caribbean, that's not great. She was trying to uh, take one of her enslaved owners to court to say how badly she was treated. She described one of the, the many different houses that she was kind of taken to, and she describes the house, the stones and the timber in the house being softer than the hearts of the owners, and that just was so profound and really stuck with me. And so I include that in the film. And then I use an illustration of something that would have been seen every day of African people being whipped for the smallest of things. 
it's both a physical and an emotional interaction with the history and the historicization, as you said, of the 17th and 18th century. This isn't a time of black history nor colonial history, but a human story which includes slavery and the British Empire. Yes, and so I've made a lot of work about different projects, uh, looking at the forgotten histories of Essex, looking at contemporary voices of Essex, which I called Black Girl Essex, trying to change the narrative around Essex Girl. And last year I made a film called Othered in a region that has been historically othered because I was thinking about the otherness of Essex as a county. People look down on Essex and Essex people. The juxtaposition of that othering, how Essex people are othered and how women and black people are othered. I made a neon text work and I just took that phrase, I am here because you were there, which was from um, a speech by David Lammy, the MP. It was in response to the Windrush scandal. I cried because he spoke really profoundly about me, the Windrush descendants. And the speech was saying the Windrush story doesn't begin in 1948 when Windrush, the ship, docked in Tilbury, Essex. The Windrush story begins in the 17th century. There have been other scholars that have talked about that before, like Stuart Hall saying that I am the sugar in the bottom of the English cup of tea. That, in a way, is a declaration for so many people in the African diaspora. That's how we're here. I want to move forward with my work in my practice as an artist. And I just want to delve into this there, the 17th century. I find if I say I'm researching the transatlantic slavery, people have a kind of negative response to this horrific part of history. Actually, if I just address this as I'm making work about the 17th and 18th century, those two centuries are about the transatlantic slavery. mentioned earlier Black Girl Essex. Another one of your works is Forgotten Black Essex, which features the stories of Princess Danubalu and also Hester Woodley, two women who have connections to Southend, and you managed to get both of them a blue plaque. In that work too, though, the figure sometimes confronts, but it often also turns its back to the viewer's gaze, much like Carrie Mae Weems, another artist who engages with the museum space, another artist who engages with autograph, and also uses a red filter throughout her works. Can you tell me a little bit about the colour red and the connection with lust and sexuality? So I wasn't thinking about that kind of sensual aspect. Not that I'm not aware of it, but it's not something that I plan. You know, it's just something that comes out maybe naturally. One of the primary decisions for using a filter is because actually if you just put your camera in the gallery space it's cabinets and right on the wall so it's about changing that kind of aesthetic dynamic of what you physically see. You know covering up the sterileness of the museum space and turning this into a film. But also red can conjure up so many as you say you know danger, sexuality, lust. These are all emotions that were part of the 17th and 18th century. I was soon surrounded by strange men who examined and handled me in the same manner that a butcher would a calf or a lamb he was about to purchase, and who talked about my shape and size in like words, as if I could no more understand their meaning than the dumb beasts. I was then put up for sale. When the sale was over, my mother hugged and kissed us. 
mourned over us, begging us to keep a good heart and do our duty to our new masters. It was a sad parting. One went one way, one another, and our poor Mammy went home with nothing. You know, I'm interested in putting women's stories forward, black women. I am a black woman and so I evoke that and I move in my own way. What I love about this film is that it speaks to both local and national experiences. Your works are collected by the likes of the Government Art Collection and over the last year you've had a number of exhibitions in London. I know that you're undertaking future work at the International Slavery Museum in Liverpool and later in Lagos in Nigeria. How does collaboration help you navigate between these different identities? I'm always mindful that I don't want to be like a selfish artist. It's just the work's just about my voice. So I'm interested in sound, but work with a professional artist that's a sound artist. So I always want to include other people because I just think it makes it more rich and more interesting. But I also want to, you know, think about other people's voices and embody them if I can. So although in all of my kind of moving image works, I'm a kind of lone figure, what you hear is other people's voices because my voice is also part of it, but I think it's more, you know, who wants to just hear my point of view? It's a collective voice. And also you mentioned how a lot of your work is research-based and also grant-based. You've been supported by the likes of Arts Council England. Like many contemporary artists, it seems like you're sort of turning away from the commercial art market that we've come to know from the 80s and the 90s. And I wonder, do you see the market and the sort of commodification of art more widely buying and selling as itself a kind of imperial structure? I don't make work to sell. I've shown work in one commercial gallery. The commercial art sector and the institutional art sector are two different worlds operating in the same world. You know, although my work's been acquired, it's been acquired by public collections um, and public galleries, and I have had private sales. Yeah, it would be really nice if some of my work was in the commercial sector because actually that's one of the biggest things as, as an artist is not making enough money. And so, yes, if you can make money through selling your work, I'm not anti that because, hey, we all need to kind of live and go on holidays and we live in a capitalist society. It's about the important things I want to say. If it has a commercial value to it, then fine. But I'm still making the work because my activism, because I feel it's my duty to talk about history and be unapologetic about that. It comes from an activist kind of stance as opposed to a commercial stance. Yeah, I like to make money, you know what I mean? But first and foremost, I make work. Elsa, thank you ever so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> Living in the Wake of the Lust for Sugar is publicly available online via the Museum of London Docklands website and social media. You'll find all the links in the episode notes. Empire Lines is produced by Jelena Sofronievich. For more episodes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.